Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Mark Rabin. Based in Cincinnati, Mark is an internationally recognized consultant, author, professional speaker, blogger, and host of the podcast My Favorite Mistake. You can follow him on Twitter or X at Mark Rabin, and check out his website at markrabin.com. Mark is the author of the book, The Mistakes That Make Us, Cultivating a Culture of Learning and Innovation. In the book, Mark explains why we should embrace and learn from mistakes instead of punishing people for them thereby fostering a productive culture of learning and innovation in our teams and organizations. In this interview, we're going to talk about Mark's what Mark's been up to since he was last on the podcast, uh, setting up a podcast of his own. And at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his, his book and uh, his experience uh, publishing it uh, for his company and the sort of various routes he's taken to writing it and getting it in front of people. So thank you very much, Mark, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast again. Yeah, Len, thank you. It's uh, great to be back. Good to talk to you again. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Um, as regular listeners know, I always like to start these interviews by asking people about their origin story, but you've done that already. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, what you've been up to since you were last on the podcast, which was like five years ago. So it's almost a new origin story, I suppose. That's an update. Yeah. Thanks for not yeah. making me rehash all. <laughs> no. The origin story is the same. Yeah. But um, we talk about maybe the origin of the mistakes that make us. And it's yeah. funny you mentioned Twitter. I spend far less time on Twitter than I did five years ago. I'm you know, pretty active. LinkedIn has become, in a lot of ways, a uh, professional, mostly professional social media you know, kind of platform. Um, so you know, people can find me there as well if, if they like. But um, yeah, over the past five years, um, you know, I'd been promoting you know, the previous book that I'd published initially through LeanPub, a book called Measures of Success. Book marketing is always more of a marathon than a sprint, you know, or at least, you know, I'm trying to do a lot of things. I, it's not like, oh, the book's done. We did two weeks of marketing. Now I'm back to writing another one. Like there's things that come from a book, you know, speaking and teaching and, and coaching and what have you. Um, coming into March of 2020, you know, I, I, I've done most of my coaching and consulting work has been very healthcare focused since 2005. March 2020, um, was traveling almost every week to go to a health system in North Carolina. We probably knew a little earlier than the general public that, hey, you know, this uh, new virus is out there and not quite sure. Like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm just going to come here and, um, you know, uh, we'll see in a couple of months, I think was the thought um, at the time. Yeah, I ended up being, um, and again, I'm like, I'm, I'm blessed, I'm fortunate, I have nothing to complain about, but the reality was okay. It was two years of not traveling um, for healthcare clients. Um, so I, I put my time and focus into a number of things, like doing marketing work for a consulting firm that I was um, working uh, with as a subcontractor at the time. And then you start thinking, like, well, what can I do? You know, stay engaged, learn something new, create something new. Uh, you know, I've been podcasting since 2006. Actually, it's kind of good. Um, a podcast called Lean Blog Interviews. It's kind of a, it's not the best name ever, but it was an extension of my blog. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, you, you get to a point where, uh, you know, you've been podcasting long enough, you end up on these lists and people start pitching guests to you. And because that podcast is so niche focused on lean, lean healthcare, lean manufacturing, lean startup, lean publishing, as we've talked about, um, you've, when you've been on that podcast, um, I, I, I was often having to say, no, no, thanks. It's not a fit. 
to potential guests. And, you know, summer of 2020, I got pitched an opportunity to interview Kevin Harrington, who was one of the sharks from season one of Shark Tank in the U.S. version. And it really got me thinking, like, let me find, I, I think this is kind of an entrepreneurial thing, but like, let me figure out how to say yes instead of just saying, no, he's not a fit. And so that turned into a, a new podcast, an additional podcast called My Favorite Mistake. And Kevin um, was the first guest he came on and, you know, I think, very vulnerably and authentically shared a story of a, a big mistake that almost put his company out of business at one point. But, I, I mean, he's such, such a good example for the guests, you know, the follow-up. You know, he took ownership of what he did, but he made sure he learned from it and he made adjustments aimed toward not repeating the mistake. So those are the things that we celebrate um, on the podcast and having guests from all kinds of different industries. Um, I started seeing patterns. And after a year and a half, I started thinking about it maybe earlier, but after about a year and a half, it's okay. There's a lot of great stories here. Uh, I think there's a book to be chiseled out of um, all of this clay and marble of, of these stories. So that's kind of what got me started down the path. Um, you know, my wife, we were moving from my wife's career. Um, so she took a job based in, uh, in Cincinnati as, you know, uh, somebody who's helping drive a lean culture and a lean transformation in a, a manufacturing company. Uh, um, so that's kind of the co dinner table conversation we have sometimes, <laughs> um, you know, overlap in our professional lives, but, um, yeah, so new podcast very much led to opportunity here for the new book, uh, The Mistakes That Make Us. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing all that. Um, it's it's interesting. One thing that happened uh, since you were last on here is um, the podcast became a little bit of a time capsule of, of, of sort of people's experience of the pandemic because I, I added a sort of new segment where it's like, how's the pandemic been affecting you? And a lot of Lean Pub authors are, or people who publish books on Lean Pub through their organizations and things like that are very independent people often. And they're people who do, many of them do a lot of consulting and a lot of flying around and like in-person talking to people. And so there right. were, you know, a lot of people who were like, you know, very, you know, everyone was very robust, but they were, you know, what's my, my year is going to look very differently now from what I thought it was going to look like. And I don't know what the end of this is going to be. And so it's, it's sort of, there's a sort of interesting level where it's like, oh, I'm a consultant who teaches people how to deal with change. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now, now I better, you know, to sort of put the rubber on the road as it were, um, uh, in my own, uh, you know, life and, work uh -huh. and you know, how I'm going to work and help, help organizations themselves through, you know, this, this very big change that everyone was going through. And I know particularly in healthcare for obvious reasons, it was just this extraordinary time of, of yeah. transformation and innovation. Um, a friend of mine, who's a well, surgeon in, um, uh, Edmonton, Alberta talked about like how, you know, like what you've been reading in the news about like 10 years of advance in in 10 months is very true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I stayed connected with some organizations virtually, remotely. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I think it goes to show it could be a fine line between continuous improvement and innovation. And you can use lean mindsets and principles and problem solving methodologies um, on, on both sides. So there, you know, uh, more often than not in healthcare, people are trying to improve an existing process to reinvent a process. The pandemic created the need to create altogether new processes, uh, drive-through testing, 
clinics or, or, or in parking garages, um, you know, really establishing from scratch brand new processes to meet brand new needs. And then as things have evolved, um, mass vaccination opportunities, whether that was, you know, at a hospital or I did get to go and visit, you know, it was a, a private public partnership between Toyota and the city of Frisco, north of Dallas, which is, you know, next town up from Toyota North American headquarters. Um, the best mass vaccination clinic that I saw designed and then continuously improved and refined using Toyota production system and lean principles. So a lot of organizations, um, if you will, leaned into it. And then there were some organizations, sadly, that said, well, we're in cost cutting mode and they were laying off people that would normally do process improvement or process design work. So it was kind of this mixed bag of how resilient or, um, you know, what the, the approach different health systems took. I, I don't know if it's 50-50. I don't have data, but I know there were some that, you know, doubled down on on the lean methodology and some said, no, oh, we can't afford that right now, which I, my bias, I think is clear. I, yeah. I, I wanted everyone to double down and, and share what they were doing to innovate and improve so that everyone could have the best mass vaccination clinic. Speaking of uh, sharing um, on your podcast, you ask people for their, their sort of favorite mistake as it were. Uh, have you ever talked about your own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've gotten that. I do get the tables turned. Right. Usually not my own podcast, but now as I've been out promoting the book, um, yeah, I, I can answer that two ways. And you know, a favorite mistake is like in the case of Kevin Harrington. That was, I think, also maybe his biggest mistake. But I'm asking, I'm not asking what's your biggest mistake because that might just create stories of regret and sadness where like a favorite mistake, it's it's subjective of why is it your favorite? It's usually one that's big enough that you remember it and it, it led to some positive outcome, even if that positive outcome was not repeating um, the mistake. So, um, you know, two answers I usually give one a little bit more flippant, but I mean it. Like when I took a job at Dell Computer in 1999, coming out of grad school, I learned probably within about six months, like, this is not where I want to be really long-term. Like, I was doing interesting work with great people, but I was just like, no, I, it's just, uh, it doesn't feel like a fit. And, you know, I ended up leaving after about two years. They said, well, was that a mistake to take that job? Uh, maybe it wasn't a huge mistake, but the positive and the thing that makes it a favorite is uh, I met my wife because I had that job in Austin, Texas. And we have our 22nd anniversary coming up here. So to be clear, but yeah, you know, if my wife, she might call me some days her favorite mistake. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not trying to imply the other, but then like from a work standpoint, um, you know, I think back even, you know, kind of within the first decade of my career, you know, I look back and I think, well, I'd like to think I knew better at the time, but I didn't, you know, it's a story around engaging a group of people in change and in improvement and, you know, I was working at a manufacturing company at the post Dell and some of it was the culture where it was not an environment where, you know, like Toyota or a place where they really fully engaged the frontline employees. You know, it was this catch 22, like part of the problem I was being asked to solve with lean was being behind schedule on production and not being able to make deliveries to customers 
But then like, well, if we're going to fix this, I, I, like, I knew from past experience, I, I wanted need time with the frontline employees, but the, the prevailing culture is like, well, you can't shut down production. Remember we're behind, <laughs> you know, like, well, how are we ever going to get out of that? Um, and, and so, you know, I did my best to try to engage people here and there or when I could develop some solutions to that problem that were quite frankly, never, uh, embraced, never fully adopted. It got me certified through their lean training program, which is kind of silly. Um, so my, my mistake, I think was not pushing harder, not putting my foot down, not drawing. I didn't feel confident enough at the time to draw a line and say, this isn't going to work. If you're expecting me to give them solutions. And so, you know, part of my adjustment, you know, now that I work as a, a consultant is not accept clients that want to put me in that position. I don't need to relive all of that. And I would probably feel, I would feel more confident today trying to say what you're proposing is not workable or is probably not going to be sustainable. I, so, you know, I've been able to work with organizations since where it's a partnership, we're co-creating, you know, people you know, value and own what they've had a hand in creating. I think there's, you know, an important change management lesson there. Yeah. Thanks very much for that. That's a really good story. I particularly like the one about how this sort of, you know, took the mistaken job, but you know, had a huge positive life change with by meeting your wife there, which is, which is great. And that distinction between favorite and biggest uh, is also, <laughs> is also really good and very subtle thing too, about to sort of like in getting people to show up on the podcast and be in the right, in the right mood. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, when they're when they're talking about their story, I was thinking a little bit before we started recording about and when I was researching for this episode about my own, and I actually couldn't really come up with a favorite one, but my my own kind of biggest one is um, I think somewhat similar to the reason it's the biggest mistake is somewhat similar to what you were saying, where I was working, I was still relatively junior, and I was working in uh, mergers and acquisitions for a big investment bank, and we were doing a you know what ended up being a you know multi-billion dollar transaction process to attempting to buy a utility in a country in Europe. And I remember being early on and like, like I was like, we are going to come up with the best bid. We're the best team in this space in Europe. You know, basically we're going to, we're going to get everything down to the, like the fifth decimal place. We're going to research every avenue. We're going to, you know, we're going to be the best when it comes to M&A. But this is a political thing that we're doing. It was in the run-up to a presidential election, and I was like, it's going to be political. Like, so, like, let's assume we can do the things we can do. And I remember the sort of team, the, lead, the, the sort of leader of the team said, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Mm. And I was like, I didn't, I didn't say the whole fucking thing's a bridge. Yeah. This whole thing is that bridge we're on it already. And I didn't say it. And I, like, I kind of, like I predicted, I basically predicted exactly what was going to happen and it, it exactly happened. So yeah. I know this mistake sounds like a humble brag, but it was actually like the fact that it worked out the way I thought exactly it would be just compounds the gravity of the mistake, right. which was again, right. I didn't think I would be listened to. I didn't think, um, I didn't want to kind of like it wouldn't be right to say I didn't want to make my boss look bad because it wasn't that kind of culture. Like nobody would have thought that kind of thing, but I kind of, I just didn't want to mess with his, he had a vision for how he wanted to do things. And I just didn't want to mess with that too much. Yeah. 
uh, and, and, and anyway, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to like sort of be perceived as though I was actively kind of like objecting to what was going on or something like that. And again, it wasn't, it was because that would disrupt the team's performance. Oh. That's why I didn't want to do it. It wasn't out of reputation or anything like that, but I should have, I should have figured out a oh. way to get this message across it in a convincing way and say, Hey, like we have to, it's all political. We have to uh, do, mm -hmm. we have to have something people on that. So that was, that yeah. was my biggest one. Well, but yeah, I mean, so it sounds like that fits a lot of the rough criteria of a favorite mistake, right? Like that story I can tell has stuck with you and mm -hmm. you've reflected on it and you've thought about it. What was your role? What was the role of others? And, you know, all you can take ownership is for is what you did or didn't do and, and think about, well, how did you grow? What would you do differently? But, you know, to think back to elements of that, one thing I write about in the mistakes that make us is, you know, about some things that I've learned about why why would people choose to not speak up about a mistake in the workplace? Let's say they've decided they want to, like personally, I can handle it. I can admit a mistake. Why would they not do so? It usually comes down to the two things and we can kind of think through or leave it a, how, uh, to think about what impact these two factors had in your storyline, but it's either a fear factor or a futility factor. Right, so I think the fear factor comes to mind of like, well, I can't speak up and challenge the boss. So I'll get in trouble. Or in a lot of workplaces, people will say, I, I'm not afraid to speak up. It's just not worth the effort. I point out these problems and nothing happens. I speak up with improvement ideas and no, it's not that I don't care. It's just not worth it. In fact, they, they care so much, they get discouraged. And, you know, they just say, well, yeah, fine. I'm not, I'm not going to set myself up for that disappointment yeah. of suggesting something and, and not be heard or not have it be followed up on. You, uh, you did be uh, two great podcast host gifts there. Uh, one was you did the segue to the next part of the interview where we talk about your book. Uh, and you also spontaneously asked me the first question I was going to ask you, which was why, why wouldn't people speak up in the first place about about mistakes and yeah, the, the, you know, the sort of futility and fear, um, sort of, yeah, that sort of very well, I think captures a lot of people's experience with that kind of thing. Um, so I guess the next question I would have is, um, if there's a, like, let's say an organization that has a fear culture where like, you know, if something goes wrong, the first thing that happens is you find someone to blame and punish them, whether it's humiliation or suspension or even, you know, firing or what have you, you know, how right. do you help if let's say you're brought in as a consultant and let, there's a sort of board that's like, we don't want to have this culture anymore. What would you, what would you do if you were brought yeah. in with that, with that mission? Yeah. And, and that first step is necessary. Or like you said, I wouldn't be there. If, if someone didn't recognize this needs to change, whether it's a, you know, a new leader comes in and kind of diagnoses, um, the situation of what they've inherited. I mean, you know, you can come in and, um, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, you, you can do use an anonymous survey vehicle because there's there's a, um, an irony where, uh, or it's just a crappy situation where people don't feel safe talking about how unsafe it is to speak up. <laughs> so you could try to do surveys and, um, but even then, like sometimes people are like, I don't believe that this is really anonymous. Like that starts going around. That's a different level layer of fear. Um, you can try to survey people and and try to quantify 
um, you know, to what degree, like psychological safety is not a yes, no binary thing. It's a matter of degree. How safe do you feel speaking up um, in, in certain situations? And, you know, you could you can do surveys, you can ask some open-ended questions. Um, you know, the survey that um, I'm trained on and, and licensed to use, ask open-ended questions like, what's one barrier that prevents you from speaking up about mistakes or different categories of things people might speak up about? And I remember one of the free-form responses just said, point blank, it doesn't really seem safe to say. Like, they very directly called out the lack of psychological safety to even talk about the lack of psychological safety. So, you know, you, you can try to do, you know, a little bit of, um, you know, surveying or assessment. Um, leaders need to do a lot more than just say, okay, it's safe now. Like that, that just doesn't work. You know, even if there's a new leader, um, people don't know that leader. They, been conditioned uh, or trained to protect themselves by by keeping quiet. Um, so I think, you know, thankfully though, there are some things that leaders can do that are effective, and it's really more action oriented, right? So you can encourage people to speak up, but what matters more is um, the action. So you know, I cite um, and, and credit Tim Clark, who I, I did some formal psychological safety training through um, his book. It's called the four stages of psychological safety for anyone who wants a, a deeper dive into this. But two really practical takeaways uh, from Tim Clark's research and experience, and I've seen this play out. Leaders need to first off model these behaviors that they want to see. Leaders start by admitting mistakes, saying very directly, I made a mistake. I was wrong. Better yet, kind of being, you know, an experimental um, problem solver, uh, which I think is such a core part of the lean methodology. When a leader says things like, I've got an idea, but I could be wrong, or maybe it's not perfectly correct. So let's test the idea first, you know, make sure we're not making assumptions. And like all of these kind of lean startup-y thought processes can apply to organizations that are decidedly not startups. Like leaders need to lead the way of saying, you know, I don't know. And saying these things that might be considered vulnerable or risky. When the leader sets that example and then maybe verbally encourages people to do the same, what matters is when somebody tests the waters and says, okay, well, the boss is all about admitting mistakes and saying you are wrong. Well, I'm going to try and see how that works. The leader had better reward people for doing that. So it's really two things, modeling and rewarding, not tolerating, <laughs> but rewarding. It's like a stronger action word. And like if someone admits a mistake, we can acknowledge the negative impact of the mistake. But instead of focusing on blame and punishment, we can focus on, on learning and, and improvement and uh, preventing that mistake or similar ones from reoccurring. And there's just all you know, the punishment the only thing punishment does is really just drive mistakes and problems deeper underground. And instead of teaching people to be more creative and how to cover up problems, let's let's try to help solve them and let's try to improve. Yeah, that's really good. I know that one of the things you talk about is like, you know, what I'm not saying is, oh, that's fine. Forget about right. it. You know, if someone admits to or sort of surfaces right. a mistake that they made. Um, 
we're, we're, we're not saying we're not saying oh who cares we're not yeah, being exactly. flippant or like but yeah we we can take these things really damn seriously and in healthcare many mistakes can be harmful or fatal yes but punishment doesn't change what happened you know punishment i think needs to be reserved for intentional acts and by definition mistakes are unintentional Yes, yes, and and it, an interesting thing that I, I mean, I don't. One thing I've thought about, like it, with respect to this kind of thing, is that um, punishment and which, of course, really well results in undergoing underground or hiding a culture of hiding mistakes or trying to put the, the blame, like put the responsibility for the mistake on someone else. That culture is completely orthogonal to whatever the mission is. For the team mm -hmm. or the organization that yes yeah. it's it might it might help it might help in some way it might not but the, that the primary culture becomes one of like deviant deception and illusion mm -hmm. uh and that's what people are primarily concerned about which is another way of saying what they're primarily concerned about is themselves rather than rather than the mission that you're on uh if you if you, mm -hmm. if you can't say i did something that was detrimental to our mission then what you, what we, the, the only reason you're doing that is because your mission is for yourself primarily, not for what the organization is really yeah. set up to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I wouldn't fault, I don't hear you faulting people for that. I wouldn't no. fault people for that. No. You know, I think of situations, um, again, a lot of this is, you know, I can't help but frame it around healthcare where, um, you know, the situations and there's a story in the book of a similar situation of, let's say, Somebody who's lower in the professional hierarchy or pecking orders. Uh, you're in an operating room or in a hospital setting, and the nurse thinks or knows the surgeon or doctor is about to make a mistake. Right. There are a lot of times where I've heard, um, you know, kind of, you know, lectures or admonitions to those nurses of like, "Well, you you should speak up." I'm like, "Well, it'd be great if they felt safe doing so." Or, or even like this layer of guilt trip of like, well, it's it's your professional obligation. I'm like, well, okay. Likewise, I would say it's the professional obligation of those surgeons or leaders to create an environment where that kind of safety can can exist. So I, I don't think it's helpful um, to 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 blame individuals for not speaking up because I always think of like, okay, that nurse should speak up. Okay, and that nurse may get fired for challenging the surgeon and that nurse is a 40 something single mother and like really you that that person should put their paycheck and maybe their home on the line like get out of here that's not that's not fair that's not realistic to put that on a nurse or a group of nurses um it it comes down to culture and it's not a matter of character of like oh good people speak up i'm like oh come on life's life's more complicated than that yeah, no, that's that's super interesting example actually because you know, for example, especially like a like things can like seconds can matter in surgery, right? And like I say this not as a surgeon, but I know some, and you know, I, you know, know a little bit about it. And like, it could be the, you could like the complication of that situation. It's incredibly intense. There's a body open in front of you, and the surgeon might actually be innovating on the fly because they've just encountered a problem they've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And let's say a nurse or even another surgeon observing might be like oh, they're about to make a mistake. And so if you bring it up, all of a sudden now that surgeon has to handle explaining to you mm. and and doing their thing on the fly. 
And so, yeah. and I'm just, I, I just bring that up as, a, as an imaginary yeah. example where like, it could be that like, there's just a kind of higher level triage you have to do sometime where it's like, well, what we'll do is we'll bring, and you, and then what you want to have is practices in place that people know. So it could be that like afterwards you have a breakdown meeting and you say, Hey, you know, I thought you were making a mistake at this point. And then, you know, the person can say, oh yeah, no, I wasn't. And like, I don't know, you can come up with various code words if you've got, but I guess if you've got practices in place, if you've categorized certain types of problems, you know, then person can sort of intervene and say, you know, I think this is a B type problem or something anyway, but it's, it's that, I just found that to be a very fascinating example because it's so complex what it means to kind of intervene in a real time situation like that. Yeah. And well, and that's, I mean, you know, there, there, there are different scenarios, different situations, but one thing I've seen in, um, kind of getting deeper around, um, feeling safe to speak up and then how we go about it. You know, I've, I've been able to sit in on some training that is really kind of based on a lot of aviation practices. Um, and, 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 and like the, there's a four step process and it's easy enough to remember, you know, basically say, let's say you're the surgeon, uh, first off say Dr. F. So I'm, I'm, I'm addressing you respectfully. I'm getting your attention by using your name. Right. Now you might react and say, look, uh, the patient is dying and I'm dealing with this. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, well, okay. You know, then you, you can debrief that later. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it's, you know, doctor. And then let's say they didn't stop me and say, um, doctor up, I have a concern. Mm. But I think that second step is really interesting because you're stating a fact. Mm. You're not saying, Hey, doctor F, I think you're fucking up here. You, you, you said you you cursed first, so right. I can say in an operating yeah, room we, we can. I have a, uh, yeah. um, so so you're saying I have a concern now. The way of resolving that could be learning why. You know, there's there's not really an issue, but saying I have a concern, you can't really say, no, you don't. Right. I have a concern. No, you don't. Well, that's bullshit. That doesn't go in. So you say, Doctor App, I have a concern. Step three, state the concern. State form, step four, make a recommendation, mm. right? So then I might, well, one example I remember is like, Dr. App, I have a concern. We don't have enough units of blood on hand for this type of procedure. My recommendation is that we don't start yet. Mm. Then a surgeon might resolve it by saying, well, I thank you. Well, hopefully first thing, thank you for sharing your concern. Mm -hmm. Reward that speaking up. Thank you. Thank you for speaking up. And then explain maybe like, oh, well, because of the patients, I'm making stuff up now because of the patient's weight or age or something like we really don't need more than three units of blood. So that three units of blood is okay. Oh, all right. But see, like there's no punishment for having that quote unquote unfounded concern. Now the, now the nurse knows, right. right? And they're, they're not being punished in a way that would prevent them from speaking up the next time when it is a really quote unquote valid concern. So I think, you know, things like that really make, make a big difference. That's a really great concrete example of like how those sort of communications are, can be, can be structured. I mean, I really like particularly, you know, the sort of like the, the, the form of address, you know, is respectful from the beginning, identifying who you're speaking to in a respectful way. Yeah. I categorizing what you're about to say by saying, I have a concern and I love that detail of like, you can't reply. No, you don't. Um, that's, yeah. that's really amazing. And it's something else you mentioned was, you know, the sort of like, sometimes, you know, it might be someone who's, you know, 
single parent who's got mortgage payments coming up and stuff like that. And sort of their, their job is like, you know, like they've got, they've got their own triage to do when, when all the decisions they're making and that, it just reminds me of a kind of funny story that, uh, Peter, my co-founder and I have from way we were traveling together once and we went to a Trader Joe's to, and one of the things we were doing was buying some wine to take back to the hotel. And, uh, this was in the States and, um, we're from Canada, so we've got British Columbia driver's licenses. And so my friend, Peter, who is like, you know, six foot three, six foot four, kind of, you know, middle-aged guy, uh, gets asked for his ID to buy some wine. And he's like already a little bit miffed at that, but he pulls it out and the, the, the clerk wouldn't, um, let him buy the alcohol because the date didn't say birthday. It just showed a date. And the guy kept. What else and, is it supposed to be? Yeah, I know exactly. Well, that's what that's what Peter said. And the guy kept again. He kept repeating, "It doesn't say birthday. It doesn't say birthday. It doesn't say birthday." And finally, the manager came over and looked at it and was like, "Let him, let him buy the, let him buy the liquor." But anyway, we we now have a kind of in-house little saying of "It doesn't say birthday," and we use it kind of like to to to, to, to lighten the mood when something like that happens. But the thing is, like, it's a. I bet you that that guy probably was like this was he was probably like out on parole or something like that and that if he lost that job like it was like it was deadly serious to him that like he didn't do a single thing out of line yeah right and and it made me like after getting over being kind of you know annoyed or laughing at the situation it's like that there was something really serious going on in that guy's life and he couldn't dare make a single mistake and it's important i think like we, we take it to heart when we're sort of designing things that sometimes when people like if they need if they're in, like someone, someone at a company might buy a lean pub book and then not handle it responsibly and then just go to some, you know, uh, you know, uh, assistant and say, I need an invoice with the company name on it. Right. Yeah. And then the hits leanpub.com, go get me an invoice. And then it's like, that person might be really like, it sounds like a kind of minor detail, but that person might actually be really under the gun. And if like, if it says receipt instead of invoice, yeah. On the document that we give them, their boss might be like, I asked you for an invoice. This is a receipt. Right. And yeah. so like, and then that person's, oh no, and we need it. accounting needs it by tomorrow. And you know, like it's, it's sort of funny, but like single words, uh, can actually be really important. And I think it's sort of very important to attend to when it comes to mistakes, like, yeah, sure. That, that guy was making a mistake in a sense, but like, you know, whoever designed the BC, uh, driver's license didn't take into right. account international travel and yes, although this, you know, and things like that. And yeah, just like that's a that's sort of in-house example of like the sort of true, that really high stakes for the person in what might seem like a really low stakes issue. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I love that. And it's this question of like, okay, well, what is the root of the problem? I, I appreciate your empathy for that person in the situation they might have, have been in because a lot of times we discover I think through problem solving in a workplace or when you're a customer and you think, you know, this company is doing something wrong and it turns out the problem is not the thing. It's not the problem you thought it was. Right. Yes. You know, um, that there's some underlying systemic factor that we're not aware of. And, and when we can try to draw that out, you know, I think that's, that's really helpful and, and realizing you know, we all make mistakes. And so we kind of point to, you know, the phrase human error. And so, well, we all make mistakes, but then I've had people kind of throw the, throw up their hands and say, well, there's always going to be human error. What do we do about 
that problem of giving the wrong medication to a patient. What are we going to do about it? I'm like, we need to answer that question. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? Meaning not who are we blaming? Are we going to somehow hire people who are never going to make a mistake? What are we going to do about it? And this is a Toyota lesson is design systems and processes and communication and all of that, that protect humans from committing human error. We can't ask people to be superhuman and to be perfect because guess what? We get tired, uh, distracted, you know, um, we're not feeling well. I mean, there are all kinds of systemic, um, there are all kinds of human factors that quite literally make it more likely that we're going to create um, cause, you know, that we're going to make a mistake as I make a mistake and trying to say the phrase, make a mistake. Yeah, no, no, that's, and it's, uh, and I just wanted to point out, yeah, one of the last sections in your book is iterate your way to success, which is all about, that's a never ending thing. It's never going to be over, but that doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. And I, and, and you know, I've blogged about this before, like when it comes to software websites or like the fact that we can iterate our way to success isn't an excuse to not try to design something good. Right. To begin with, um, it's not meant, it's not, in a, you know, um, saying everyone makes mistakes and we're going to learn from them is not giving permission to people to quote unquote, be sloppy because people want to do good work. People don't want to make mistakes. You know, there's a time and, and you know, I took pictures at, at an airport and, and I blogged about it. American Airlines had like designed um, this new digital signage for the gates. Like I'm a frequent traveler. What I care about is like what city, what flight number. And, and you know, they had designed this new digital signing that was signage that was beautiful. Like, you know, there was a photo of a, of the city or the place or but then like kind of like what the iPhone was at that time, like all of the text was like that stylish, thin Helvetica font. And I'm like, I don't know what building that city's in and i don't know what that represents it's beautiful but not helpful and they did eventually kind of iterate their way back to signs with big bold text you know that was more readable but i'm, I'm just kind of curious like who shared a hypothesis that the first iteration of that new sign was was going to be well received by the flying public you know i mean i I kind of fault them and maybe I, it's unfair for me to throw stones from I'm like, man, you should have, yeah, y'all should have tested that idea better before going live with it. Now, again, they could iterate, but that took time. Uh, that's a very good example of a problem I could talk about for a very long time. Um, yeah. what that's sort of like, just to talk about for a minute or two, like, I think what there was a great, um, I don't know, tweet or blog post or something that I saw, which was contrasting. Um, I think it was, it might've been like, GM's kind of mission statement with Tesla's mission statement. And um, uh, Tesla's mission statement was basically, we want to build the best car the best way. That was basically it. And yeah. GM's was, we want to provide the customer with a delightful experience. And it's like that, that, that trend that's been happening in the design of things uh, in big corporations. This thing is like, oh, what people want is a delightful experience. And like, no, they want to sign in this in this case, like, yeah, sure. If I go to a bar, I might want a delightful experience or if I'm going to a restaurant, but a sign is there to show me where my gate is you know, yeah. and how to get there. Maybe not. A, yeah. I don't want to, that, that I don't want an experience. I don't want any experience at all, let alone a delightful or an unpleasant one. I just want information. Uh, and yeah. it is, it is interesting how like the, that that's, 
not taking the user's actual sort of what, what it's not just need. It's like what 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 is really going on here? What are why are we really putting up this sign? And it's not to have a delightful experience. It's to give people yeah. what they need. Yeah. Yeah, and so there's always this risk of like what you know in, in lean startup circles, MVP, minimum viable product. How many people have focused on the minimum more than right. the viable and useful? Right. And mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you know, there's this question with lean publishing. You know, you you publish that first chapter. Do you publish the first shitty draft that hasn't been copy edited yet? Maybe not, right? I mean, like how how good does it need to be before you hit publish? Even though you realize, okay, yeah, I can iterate. Like there's 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 a fine balance there. And you know, my book coach reminded me, even with my last book here, um, releasing an imperfect book is better for your business than waiting to release a perfect one. So I think I found the right balance of like not not agonizing over perfection. And, and again, like I did not use the lean publishing model with this book. I released, here was, here was, here's the book, here's the completed book. And then I did find about 12 or 15, uh, typos or bugs, if you will, that needed fixed, you know, so I could iterate. I found one the other day, you know, but, you know, trying to find that balance of like how early to release, like, you know, the lean software, agile people, say things like, well, if you're not a little bit embarrassed by your first release, you waited too long. But then like as an author, I'm like, does that same thing apply? I don't know. Maybe a book is more personal than 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 software or a website. I don't know. Yeah, that's um, that's very interesting. You've given me another great gift as a podcast uh, guest, which is you segued into the third part of the interview where we talk about the the uh, author's approach to writing and, and publishing and things like that. And I'm super interested to hear about that because yeah, so this for this latest book, you, for your, some of your previous books, you've done sort of a lean publishing style thing where you publish in progress, but for this one, you sort of published it all at once. And it's it's super interesting that that question about. Um, typos and like when should you release applies to all publishing right like because it's in like ev everybody who's ever even like published a blog post knows that like the moment you hit publish you see the typo in the title or whatever yeah you know and yeah. this is true of, of, this has always been true of book publishing um and even traditional book publishing on labs yeah yeah exactly and like knowing knowing where to stop and like um there's an interesting i'm sure you've you've heard the i always forget which band it is but there was a band that like Whenever they were doing a concert, they had a list of things that needed to be done. And one of them was like, take all the red M&Ms out of the bowl of M&Ms. So it was supposedly Van Halen. Van Halen. Okay. okay. And I believe the story is true, whatever yeah. the color of the M&M was. Yeah. 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 And the, and the idea there is that like, they would, they weren't doing it because they hated whatever color of M&M it was. It was because if, if the people were setting up the concert, they, I mean, there might be pyrotechnics, huge things that could fall, things like that. Um, if they didn't do that detail because they didn't like it or they didn't think it needed right. to be done. Well, then what, because they were using their own judgment, it's like, well, yeah. without communicating that they hadn't done it and why, then they just didn't trust anything else that was done. And I think there's a lot of that going on. And like, I, this is, it's kind of a subjective thing, but when people open up a book, if there's like a typo on the first page, you're like, well, you just lose confidence in, in, in what's going on. Um, uh, I think there's an element of that, of that to it. So there's, it's kind of a, it's, yeah. it's kind of a serious thing, right? Like it's not, it's not just a, oh, these people don't pay attention to detail. It's like, yeah. well, do I really trust that they're an expert on well, X, Y, and Z if they like, you have a typo on their first page? Yeah. 
But I think there's there, there there's a lot of applications of this idea of I'm going to go look for the small detectable mistake, right? Because it would be harder or impossible to inspect if all the stage lighting and everything had been rigged up correctly. Mm-hmm. So you look for the thing that you can actually look for, right. and then say, okay, maybe we're going to use that small mistake as an indicator to really seriously go mm-hmm. uh, have a professional go inspect for the big potential mistake even if that means canceling a show like i think the one time we'll probably never try this again my wife and i were um buying we 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 put money down to buy a house that was being built right so we were not building like our house but it was basically in the neighborhood like here's the house on this lot and here's the plan would you like to buy it and then wait you know for it to be built so we're like okay and then we started you know you go in and you walk through whether it's with them or you just go stomping through on your own and we started seeing all kinds of mistakes that were so obvious to us with the naked eye. Like I probably wouldn't have feared that the whole thing was going to collapse. Like that doesn't happen in the United States. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but it certainly did shake our confidence in the home builder and in our frustration built and their reaction to the frustration wasn't good. And we we basically said, you know what, it, it'd be more expensive to see this through. It was expensive to walk away. Mm-hmm. But I mean, those things were kind of like our brown M&Ms or whatever yeah. the color was. It's interesting though. I'd never quite thought about it in the way that the sort of like, the, the, there's a caution that one should do if one's going to apply that kind of uh, judgment, right? Because are you just looking for the things that you can see? And that reminds me of the sort of like, um, you know, pe- people who are sort of out of their, gra- the, I call them grammar scolds people who are kind of out of their intellectual depth in a conversation, but will go, it's whom, not who, you know? And it's kind of like, uh, you're actually missing the bigger picture here, my friend, you know, and language doesn't right. actually work like that. You know, like people do things on the fly and, and what have you. Uh, so it's yeah. very important to think that like, yeah, you might, you might think you're doing your, your, the, the sort of like Van Halen life and death kind of thing when actually you're just kind of being self-indulgent at the same time. So it's important to, <laughs> right. important to keep that in mind. Uh, and um, one thing I'm really interested in about, because we're sort of thinking, thinking through, I mean, you know, 10 years, maybe later than we should have, but like, you know, book launching and stuff like that. Oh, um, how did you go about launching this book? I mean, I'm, I'm particularly interested because it sort of came out of a podcast that you already had. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think with each book I've done, I've tried to be a little bit more methodical about building up to do the launch. The so one thing I'm always balancing is like, you know, the impatience of like back to uh, releasing an imperfect book now versus waiting. It's like, well, and I talked through with book coach, like I could spend more time, like the book's done. Book is ready to hit publish, print, release on. I could spend more time on like trying to build this, you know, PR campaign and build up or whatever. And then at some point she's like, well, the best, the business benefit from getting the book out there, even with an imperfect launch, like, so trying to find this balance of like, there was, there were activities, some of it might even be considered a plan around, you know, different things I wanted and need to do um, to help promote the book. I certainly started doing, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, teaser. And be some of the first who would want to go buy the book. I have no way of confirming if that assumption was true or not. Now, maybe then once the audio book 
was released. And then I, you know, when I when I do podcasts, I can kind of insert, you know, house ads, if you will. Um, like, hey, podcast listeners, the audiobook version is now available. Like, well, maybe people like, I'm not a reader, I'm a listener. And, you know, so maybe it was a waste of time to promote the book when it was paper and um, readable ebook. Um, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, I try to do different things. I mean, you know, you build a website for a book, uh, lots of LinkedIn posts, um, book giveaway contests. Um, you know, kind of interviewed, you know, interviewed people who were involved in my book writing and production process and had them on my favorite stake. And then, you know, trying to be on as many other podcasts as a guest, you know, to get word out there. I've, I've, I've heard it at one point when I used I haven't used a paid PR person for this launch, which I've, I've done in the past, but one PR person was dead serious. So like, uh, they probably had data to back this up. Like you could hire a PR person to get you on TV. Like that might seem cool. That might be, uh, you know, kind of a uh, not a vanity metric like lean startup talk, but a vanity effort. And this PR person was like, radio listeners and podcast listeners, they're the ones who buy books. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm going to learn to focus um, energies there. So, um, you know, I, it's kind of like this marathon book launch approach, like what, what are things I can do for free that are just a matter of effort? What are some things that are maybe a little bit creative? Um, you know, starting to do some experiments and I always try to frame everything as a small experiment, like trying to do some advertising for the book. And then the thing that I'm still trying to craft and figure out how to launch on LinkedIn is like, I think advertising to sell one book at a time is probably not very worthwhile. But if I can frame an ad campaign around, hey, do you want to buy a bulk order for your team? Well, that might be a transaction that's more worth the cost of the the view or the click or or something that more directly pitches, you know, speaking or coaching or consulting. Um, but you know, the book in a way is marketing for all of those other things. Like the other thing I'll add, I'll, I'm sorry, I'm answering a question you didn't ask, like to me, the business model is not the book revenue and royalties of which lean pubs are generous. And thank you for that. Um, it's not about the book royalties. It's it, the book is almost, um, I mean, I, I hope the book is of value to people, but the book hopefully opens the doors for, you know, speaking, coaching, consulting, things like that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, thanks very much. A really great answer. I mean, that's for a lot of people who are thinking like, should I write a book? And they're like, you know, the first thing they think is, oh, how much money am I going to make from the book? You know, sometimes we get people getting really excited. They're like, I'm going to be publishing my book on Tuesday. I just wanted to let you know, so your site doesn't go down. And it's, <laughs> we hope, I mean, we kind of hope you, you do that, but you know, that's kind of very, very unlikely. And like, uh, when, if one's going to be self like publishing a book for a company like you do, or self-publishing as an individual, um, thinking about like what's the where it fits in your life and your professional career and think what your real goals are right and like it could be that getting some revenue from it is really important but it could be that like like if you for example if you have an accompanying podcast people find the podcast through the book they might not buy the book but now you've got a new subscriber on your podcast or, or vice versa right they might find the podcast and be like oh but like that the book has an there's a whole book about this and there's an audio book and you know, instead of listening to people kind of tell their stories, I can actually get the authors sort of all everything they've learned from hearing all those stories in their books. So that's what I'm after. Um, yeah. Things like that. Um, 
And actually speaking of royalties, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I know you blogged about this, is um, yeah. you tried you tried um, having the book up, the ebook up on the, the, the Amazon Kindle Select program. Uh, this is something that, you know, a lot of people who are getting, who are into self-publishing have tried or getting into it, like sort of what it's one of the first things you'll probably learn about is, is that program. And what was yeah. your experience like with that? So, um, you know, the first books that I did initially through Lean Pub, uh, Practicing Lean and Measures of Success, I did the Lean Publishing approach and was working with um, Lean Pub. And then you can also put it on Amazon. You know, you and again, I was outputting the Lean Pub outputs and, you know, um, was able to upload that to Amazon um, in addition to Lean Pub. But then Amazon really wants you to be exclusive with the ebooks, not on the print, but on the ebooks. So I put those other books into that KDP Select program, which meant I had to take it down from Lean Pub and like retire. I retired it. Is that the right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We have right a word. page where you can retire a book, which means the landing page stays yeah. up, but it no longer can be purchased and you can direct people to wherever else you're selling it now. Yeah. And, um, you know, my book coach had, you know, I had asked her and she, and her answer, you know, should I do KDP select? And she's like, oh, absolutely. And like, I trusted her judgment. I'm not faulting her. Like this was a couple of years ago and maybe some of the the dynamics um, have changed and, and shifted for different reasons. But, um, I started with the new book, The Mistakes That Make Us, as Amazon Kindle exclusive. And so in the KPP program, if people people can still purchase the book at a price you set as the author, um, but then it's also available um, for people who are subscribers of the Kindle Unlimited service. That's what the reader side of it is called. It's like $11.99 a month and you can borrow books basically. You can download them. You can have up to X number of books. So I started looking at the royalties and they, they'll break it out. Like, here's how much you're getting from ebook, from print book, from the Kindle select program. And they pay you based on page reads, right? And, and there's this pool of money. And I think part of the dynamic maybe over time is there's more and more books published the pool probably gets spread out, even though that, that pool of money kind of grows. Um, I wasn't impressed with the payouts. And one website, I went and looked this up. And um, it said the rate in July was said to be roughly 0.4 cents per page. So now we're like in the realm of micropayments, which were a trendy, hot idea for a while. So I went through and did the math based on the number of pages in my book. And so the royalty I would get if somebody bought the book I know I put that in finger quotes because you're really licensing it. You don't really own it. Um, I was getting paid basically $5.50 at that rate through the Kindle per page program. And they read the entire book. I was getting 84 cents. I'm like, that doesn't seem great. And I start looking at the absolute, it was, it was like 2% of my Amazon overall royalties. And so after that 90-day period, I could pull it from Kindle Select. So still available for purchase, but not for borrowing. And then I was able to list the book and I, I reopened, I unretired Practicing Lean and Measures of Success. So those books are now available um, also on Lean Pub and also some other ebook platforms. But like for me, and I, I've tried to do some reading and research and a lot of people say, yeah, that that pay per page read 
only works better for fiction writers. And if you've got a ton of books and you hook someone with the first one and then they go plowing through your entire series and there were more people saying, yeah, I don't know if it really makes sense as a nonfiction writer. Certainly, well, that comes back to the question of royalties. Like there, there's some people say, well, every time the book gets borrowed, it helps the algorithms at, at, at Amazon put the book in front of more people. You know, so I'm framing it as an experiment, um, but I, you know, I don't know. I, I I don't know what I'd have to see to make me go back and try KDP Select again. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. I love, I really love it when people like share the details of it, like what their process was, what their experience was, how the thing works, and why they made their decision. That's just really that's just gold for anyone who's sort of thinking of thinking of doing it or who's maybe had a similar experience and wondered what the explanation was. And definitely. In the self-publishing world, for anyone listening, there are people who like, there's a, the path. The path is write a hundred thousand word novel a month. Uh -huh. After three years, you'll have 3,600,000 word novels, novels out there. Um, why are they a hundred thousand words? Well, it's an easy, easy, it's a big, it's a big number, but like, it's a definite number. You can have a, like a daily page, daily number of words that you need to write. Um, you can have a weekly target. And if you can do it and like Amazon loves one of the things that out speaking of algorithms, a they change all the time. B they're proprietary, yeah. uh, right? And so gaming the algorithm is like you're already kind of subordinating yourself to some changeable process that other people are deciding on, and um, the people who are like making money from subscription services that do that are based on page reads, like like Kindle Unlimited. Yeah, the, the people who are going to be making money are going to be the people who have a hundred books out there. And like yep. a million pages or whatever uh, to be read. Um, I've just personally, I've always found that like it's just such a kind of like it. It's sort of necessarily these subscription services turn into kind of Rube Goldberg machines, you know, where it's like, oh, what's the point zero zero eight five nine point two one cents per page read, and then like you know, so you know, there was a period of time, and the people are always whenever there's a whenever there's like a system, like even mm -hmm. carbon credits or something like that. There are people who come to exploit the system. Uh, and so there were people who were like making books that had like a link from the beginning of the ebook to the end of the ebook. Um, and that originally for a while was tricking, tricking the Amazon yeah. algorithm into thinking the whole book had been read. And then you just, and like this, to, it's seriously, there are like, yeah. there are like office buildings with people who click to juice the sort of yeah. stats and things like that. And like, so you're, if you're in the system like that, you're competing with people who are like, exploiting the system professionally yeah exploiting uh yeah i mean there's gaming the system and then there's fraud and some of that if you're yeah. paying someone that's just click through that that seems fraudulent you think uh you know amazon would have the data to look in and to see how quickly were the pages being turned they should have that oh huh? they they they, they right. you. amazon definitely um uh adapted to that thing but the but the fundamental problem is inherent and get, doesn't go away which is that you've got a system that system has a structure and that structure yeah. can be exploited once you've got a complex system of rules based on payouts and stuff like that and like you know there's yeah. nothing this is just very personal this isn't me speaking for lean pub or whatever but the idea that like my system for paying independent authors or organizations only works if i can track everybody's page read you know right. so now well now i have to have some proprietary system for reading the book that's getting all their page reads and like as you say like timing maybe time of day how long did it take them to go from page to page like oh my god 
and then calculating some payout based on that. Like I've always found that to be, try it out, see how it works for you, but like treat it exactly as you say, like the first time you do it, treat it as, a, as an experiment, treat it as a reversible decision, you know, things like yeah. that, like give it a try. But like, I've always found those systems to be just kind of, just kind of crazy. Yeah. And then, you know, there's other things to look at whether, I mean, one, one thing I love about lean pub is the choose your own price yeah. model for the buyer or the set boundaries around that. So, um, correct me if I'm wrong. If they have to be careful when I set that, uh, I think Amazon's pretty insistent. We have to be the cheapest. So, yeah, so that's but, so my understanding of the Amazon. When it, if you're selling an ebook on, if you're selling an ebook on LeanPub, we have no restrictions. They can do whatever you want anywhere else, whatever you want. Yeah. But Amazon right. and, and other platforms might actually, it's important to remember if you've never done this before, that they might have their own rules. And Amazon, I think, says you can't sell the book for a lower price, the same book for a lower price anywhere else. And now, but the thing is, once you've got that rule, so what that means is that Amazon actually has like bots looking to see if authors are breaking this rule and those bots sometimes make sometimes catch people who are breaking the rule sometimes they're breaking the rule without knowing it and then and right. sometimes and sometimes there's a false positive so you can once you're in that that ecosystem you can actually suddenly like you put all this work into your book you can maybe have all these contrivances of like you know I'm going to have a sale every week to get it boosted on Friday at 6 p.m. because I know the algorithm likes that and then one day you might go there and your book's gone and it's like yeah Oh my God, now you have to contact Amazon's KDP customer support and that like they're well, now you have to trust that they're going to be responsive. And all yeah. of a sudden you see your book doing that because it's not in any of the lists anymore because it's been taken off. And maybe you've yeah. been kicked off the platform, suspended from the platform too for violating. And it's because there was another another book with a similar title with a different yeah. price. You know, so like when you get involved in systems like that, now that being said, Amazon is where all the eyeballs are, right? So like, you know, it, it might be worth it to, to get, get involved in all of that kind of stuff, uh, depending on what your goals are, particularly with respect to revenue yeah. and growing your audience and things like that. But it's important when you get, when you get into that, those, those kinds of systems with rules like that to understand, you know, that creates all kinds of vulnerabilities. Yeah. Yeah, it's in interesting to think through. I, you know, I I heard myself when I said the the book royalties are not the main thing. So like, if I was on Lean Pub exclusively, you know, to 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 set that up where people could dial it all the way down to free, like I'm sure you look at data of like most readers probably wouldn't do that, and 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 like, it, is there benefit to me and my overall business to have? people willing to download it for free and reading it and maybe learning about me and the other things that I do, like maybe be, maybe I'm making a mistake and not just, um, at least making the option of it being free. Um, yeah. I, what, 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 what do you see when people have that options? And I realize I'm not the host here. No, 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 please go ahead. Now it's, it's, uh, I, I could talk about, I mean, my stuff all, all day long. Uh, but, um, no, this is, this is very, it's a very important decision because so as, as Mark's saying, LeanPub has a variable pricing model. So when you, when you publish your book, you set two prices for it, a suggested price, which is what people will see it's set to when they go to the landing page and then a minimum price. And we have these things called pricing sliders that they can slide to the left to bring the price down to your minimum price, or they can actually slide right to actually pay more than the suggested price if they want to. Um, and we, because we pay an 80% royalty rate, we show two sliders, one that says, like you pay, mm -hmm. 
and one that says author earns. And I think we're the only self-publishing site that like shows how much the author gets gets from your payment uh, because the royalty rate is so high. And so what that means is that actually, this is like old lean pub lore, but like basically we saw people choosing strange prices and it's like, oh, it's because they were setting the slider to what they wanted <laughs> the author to get. They didn't, because, you know, so they would set, they would set it to like $10 but that would mean they'd be paying, you know, whatever, whatever price, you know, sort of, and, and, um, uh, $12 or, or, or whatever it is for the book. And, um, and, uh, no, that's not right. That's not good math, but you, everyone knows what I mean. Um, but, but that, but what you could also do is the, so currently the lowest paid price, you can set your minimum price to is seven ninety nine, And that's another discussion, but you can also set it to free. Um, uh -huh. and so one, one thing I would say is that, uh, some of our best selling books for revenue like how much money the author has earned, have a free minimum price. Mm -hmm. um, and whether that works or not. So for example, and this is what the, this great distinction you made between like what the business of fiction and the business of nonfiction comes in. Um, yeah. So one of the reasons these books, I'm thinking a very specific set of books, they were sort of, they sort of came out of a very popular MOOC on Coursera, a massively open online course. So the people who were coming to that page were professionals or people who were trying to advance students or professionals who were trying to advance their careers. And these are people who typically have like a little a, a budget for what they're doing. They might even be, be being paid by their company to do this and have a credit card or something like that. And so if, if a professional is buying your, and you're a professional and they're a professional and they're buying your nonfiction book and it's got a free minimum price, they're actually more likely than in other circumstances to leave it at the suggested price maybe move it down to the minimum price, but people will actually slide to the right and pay more if they think it's worth more I, than that. I've seen that happen. Yeah. 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 And it's, and it's, again, it's because it's specifically, I think with lean pub, it's both, it's some combination of the variable pricing, the fact that we empower the sort of customer to decide what they want to pay. People love that. Um, the fact that we show what the author's going to earn has all kinds of psychological impacts on like, whether you feel yeah. like you're being cheap or cheating, cheating the person or something like that. Um, and you know, and, uh, and you know that the idea that free is available, like sometimes people might reward you with a payment because you've been generous and made it free. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I would say also like some of our, um, it also it, it just totally depends on what you're. And this is why it's so important to think. But what am I really up to here? Why am I really writing and self-publishing mm -hmm. a book? So some of our most popular ones, our most popular books right now are from uh, in terms in terms of copies, are from a nonprofit based in San Francisco that's trying to give materials for teaching like kind of data science training to teachers all around the world, particularly from places where like people don't necessarily have a lot of money. Um, uh, and so those, those don't, those don't, they, they make, they make enough money that it's like totally like helping to fund the nonprofit do what they're doing. But their primary wow. interest is getting it to as many people as they can. So in their case, seeing like we sold a thousand free copies today and we made a hundred bucks because some people decided to pay for it. Like they're, they're like, they're perfectly fine with that ratio. So it depends, but it, it very much depends on the circumstance, but it's definitely the case that like being, making free minimum price doesn't mean you're not going to get any paid sales. Right. Right. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, that's, uh, thanks. uh, thanks for going through that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, in the interest of, uh, of, of time, uh, we've reached maybe our, our limit here. Um, I just wanted to ask you the last question I always ask, um, if the guest has, has published a book on LeanPub is, um, 
if there's one thing that I guess for you, after all these years, still has you shaking your fist at Lean Pub, damn you, why don't you fix this? Oh. Uh, or if there was one feature, it just any it can be anything that you would ask us to build for you, what would you ask us to do? That's a really good question. I bet I had an answer the first time you asked me that that was five years ago. And I know a lot of things have changed. Um, and I drawn a blank on yeah. what's that of what that might be this time. That was making me think like, okay, come on, be creative, come up with uh, something cool that um, that no other ebook platform is doing. I mean, and I've used a lot of the features, including you know taking the ebook and exporting it as a print ready PDF. I did that with uh, with the book Practicing Lean. Um, didn't do that with the others. Um, I don't know. Um, that's okay. I mean, I'm, that, that's afraid, I'm afraid you stumped. I'm afraid you stumped me. I mean, and you know, I started using the platform again uh, more actively here. I'd have a better answer if I was starting another new project. Like, let me, let me just plug real quick because all the proceeds um, go to a, a nonprofit. That book, Practicing Lean was something where I very intentionally wrote two chapters on this theme of like learning. It was, it was my first exploration, I guess, of learning from mistakes and sharing stories. And then I recruited 15 other authors to write a chapter to share their story. So I forget how long that took, but it might've taken like a year. So, you know, that, that process was perfect, perfectly suited to lean publishing. That was my first use of it. So if I were to ever do a sequel of that, do a practicing leaning two, you know, with more stories or, um, or something, I mean, I can think of a lot of situations where, where I would use lean publishing again, and I'd be able to give you a better answer. Yeah. And I'm not one who's shy to give feedback. I'm just oh. kind of blanking out on, on, on how to answer that. So oh. I'm, I'm filibustering and trying to see if I can come up with something, but. Yeah, no, that's that's okay. It actually, um, when I spring that on people, there, that that's actually kind of like I would say almost like you know half the time people are like, oh, I can't think of anything right now. But the, my answer to that is, if you ever do think of anything, you've got my email. <laughs> Please reach out to me. Uh, well, don't, don't hesitate. We love. We, I mean, LeanPub is yeah. what it is, largely because of feedback from authors, sort of like in the wild, trying things out and doing things and coming up with ideas. Yeah, you guys have been super responsive, um, you know, to to those needs and questions. Um, over time, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're working with, uh, I think it's going to sound like a picture when you're working with lean pub, you're working with people, you know, <laughs> some big, big, huge, giant corporation. You may or may not be dealing with a bot, you know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Are you going to get help or like, just, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We try to do, do our best there. Well, uh, Mark, thank you very much for being uh, on the podcast again, and congratulations for uh, the podcast and the book, The Mistakes That Make Us, Cultivating a Culture of Learning and Innovation. I encourage everyone who's interested in learning more about this to go uh, buy the book. It's got lots of great stories and great advice. Find it on LeanPub. Thanks. Thanks, Len. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.